morning. Joel, that was, uh, that was a gift for us. Well, I want to say good morning. As I already did, my name is Mitch Clausen, and yeah, alongside John and Sarah, I get to participate in pastoring here at Reality. It's a gift to have you here with us. And for those of you new or old, you're finding we are finding ourselves landing within this series on the book of Genesis. So we're looking the first book of a library of scripture of this unified story that is pointing towards the person of Jesus and a story in whom this a story that culminates also in the person of Jesus. So we're saying Genesis, some of the earliest chapters of the Bible, what in the world do they have to say about the story of Scripture, one, two, about what it means to be human? So we've been discussing in this series, what does it mean to be human and how do we read this story, which is a unified story that is pointing towards and culminating in the person of Jesus? And we said that some people approach the text, approach approach Genesis with questions more about the scientific, the scientific background of things. When we've been talking about, actually the invitation is to look through a lens of people that found themselves in the time of Genesis being written in the ancient Near East. And likely they were asking slightly different questions about what it means to be human than those of us a little bit later with the technological advancements that we have access to. So instead of looking from this picture from the Hubble telescope that John has shared in the past that I don't have on the slides, rather we're to think more of a picture of art like Van Gogh's Starry Night. That's a picture of the cosmos and what it means to be human that we're invited into. There's been a few themes about what it means to be human that we've highlighted. The first that John has talked about is that the first creature, human beings, Adam, is made out of both dirt and divine breath. That we as human beings are made from the ground, just like everyone and everything else. But yet, something particular, something unique, that the Spirit of God breathed life into us. So we are dirt and divine breath. The second that we've been talking about is that we are stewards. That we are priests. The human vocation that we read in Genesis says, you are to serve and to keep. Language of priestly duties to serve and to keep. And today, after we've talked about being dirt and divine breath, after we've talked about being stewards of creation, to serve and to keep the people and the land around us with respect and care, today we're talking about human partnership. Actually, a lot about what Joel was talking about. This is a question that I, I want to start with. Where have you felt the void of Christian community? The void. I have really the privilege of of working with teenagers a lot of the time. I chat with people between grade 6 and grade 12. And there's often an angst that I see in the youth in our community that are like, we don't actually have many Christian friends. I don't know if you felt that. Have you? Maybe trace yourself back to high school. That can be a very simple exercise. There's one story of two girls in our group, both of them going to the same high school. One of the girls was raised in a Christian home, the other girl was not. 
And this girl who did not find herself raised in a Christian home quite literally found out and learned about Jesus and decided to be a follower of Jesus because of Google. Exclusively on her own. She said, this is a story that I want to identify with. I'm a follower of Jesus now. And yet, she had no Christian community. Zero. Did not know another follower of Jesus. Until at school, she looked. And this other girl was wearing a cross, a necklace. And somehow, in awkwardness, can you imagine the awkwardness of being a teen in high school, the intimidation of actually what it means to be a Christian? Maybe you felt that in your workplace. In high school, imagine even yet. She says, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Are you? And now they're friends. Sharing their testimony about being followers of Jesus, how they found each other in friendship at high school, weeping at a youth gathering downstairs in this building saying, we are so glad that we found each other. Have you felt a void of Christian community like that before? In a space where you're like, I just wish I had someone else who might see the world from a similar perspective that I do of following Jesus. Have you felt that before? My hunch is that God's vision for human partnership is a lot bigger than the vision that we have for it. A lot bigger. Paul, in the New Testament, in Ephesians, he says this, he says, the church, which is the body of Christ, is the fullness of Jesus. Think about that. The fullness of Jesus that fills every place in every way. The church, the body of Christ, the partnership of believers, the fullness of God that fills every place in every way. That is God's vision of what it means to be in human partnership. Filling the earth in every possible way of His goodness. My second hunch is that Genesis 2 has a lot to say about where this idea of human partnership actually starts and is initiated from. Human partnership is an image-bearing quality. So we're in Genesis 2. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Genesis 2, we're going to start in verse 15. First thing I want to say is, human partnership is an image-bearing quality of God. It's not a convenience. It's necessity. Human partnership Community, fellowship, flows out of the very nature of God who shares the fullness of Himself with us. Human partnership flows out of the very nature of God to give out of the overflow. And we start to see this at the beginning of Genesis. Human partnership, a couple points that we're going to be working through that talk about this a little bit more. The first is, it is a way that we know God. We actually learn about God when we are in partnership, community with one another. In human partnership, I believe we learn in Genesis that we can enjoy God's character. When we are with people, we actually get to delight in who God is in a particular way. Third, we get to participate in the life of God. Stewards, keeping and serving, creation, and all that the kingdom of God extends. And lastly, we reveal God's character to other people. This is what human partnership consists of. It's a delight. It's a gift. And yet, I see it starting here in Genesis. Delight in partnership happens because we are mutual participants of a God-given vocation. So let's start reading in our text. Genesis 2. I'm going to read from verse 15 
through to verse 25. And where we see the Lord God in our translations, we've been saying Yahweh Elohim. But this is our reading. It's one maybe that you've heard before. We read this. Yahweh Elohim took the man, put him in the garden to work it, to take care of it. And Yahweh Elohim commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you'll surely die. Yahweh Elohim said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now Yahweh Elohim had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So Yahweh Elohim caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took flesh from the side of man and clothed up the place with flesh. Then Yahweh Elohim made the woman from the side he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this now is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is God's word for us this morning. There's two things I want to do. First is I want to to go through the story again, and I want to dust off some terms that I think maybe we've allowed a little bit of sediment to grow on. We need to see with new, uh, a renewed sense of clarity. And then second, after we go through the story again, I want to talk about implications of what it means to delight in God through human partnership in 2023. More specifically, how in the world do we just do it here? If we can't do it here, I don't think we're going to be able to do it anywhere else. So, first thing, I want to start working through this story. Verse 15, we see this. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, took the man, put him, placed him in a garden to serve and to keep it, to work it, to take care of it. Man is entrusted now with this place that he can engage in this vocational identity of being a priest, serving and keeping. But there's something important that we don't get in English, and I just want to highlight it. It's something worth our knowledge in that In this passage, there's two different Hebrew words used for man, okay? There's two different words. The first word, which is the most common one that we hear up until verse 22 and 23, is Adam, where we get the name Adam, okay? The first term is Adam. This Hebrew word in this text at this time is similar to when we would say, hey guys, it's actually... In the, at this time, it's, um, there's not a connotation of gender specification. But it would be better translated likely the human being. The human being. Key for us, though, is that Adam, there is still unorder. Not disorder. Unorder. Something that has not yet found its place. 
More specifically, Ian Proven, an Old Testament prophet that used to teach at Regent College, he refers to this as the earthling because the term Adam comes from Adama. Adam that came out of the ground, which is referred to Adama. So Adam, Adam, from the ground, Adama. A play on words to remind us of where we have come from. Not first the given name. Later, once we hit verse 22 and 23, that is when we will be shown a new term that does have more gender distinction within man and woman. But from Adam, the source for man and the source for woman are found together and later in the narrative. And I I realize that me even mentioning this can open up such a, a conversation around gender, sexual identity. What I'm trying to highlight, and I think what this is getting at, is not that you have to to follow me in this line of belief, but rather that there is something of unorder that needs to be ordered. That is what the narrative, uh, the narrator, the writer, is trying to get us to pay attention to. Something must be put into order. There's a level of participation and mirroring of God's image that Adam is not yet doing that will happen later on. But then we move to verse 18, and, and it follows this theme. Verse 18, the first time in all of creation we hear that something is not good. If you've read Genesis 1, God said time after time, He created, it was good. He created, it was good. He created, it was good. It was very good. Verse 18, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The first not good thing. This unordered element within God's image, the human being, Adam, is named. He's alone. He's lonely. He has no one to work alongside, to spread the load of this vocational work, to serve and to keep the garden which is now under his care and under Adam's concern. But why is being alone an issue? Why is it not good for Adam to be alone? And this is where I just think it's so important for us to understand ourselves in light of who God is. Something that we haven't talked much about in in recent time here at Reality is the fact that God, by very nature of His being, is a triune God, a God of community. For some of you, the term Trinity might make no sense. Essentially what we say is that in community is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is... The very nature of who God is and image-bearing as humans flows out of God's very nature. God says in Genesis 1 verse 26, if you flip over a page, He says this, let us make man and woman in our image, in our likeness. Let us, plural, us. There's a complexity of God saying, I am not alone and lonely. I'm actually in community. God's chief attribute is being triune. That means three three things. I'm not going to try to unpack everything about the Trinity this morning. We don't have time. But being an image bearer flows out of God's nature of already being in community. There's three things that I highlight about who God is that we're going to find out throughout the whole story of Scripture. The first is this. God's three persons. Three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God the Father is the one 
who initiates all of creation through His Word, which is His Son, by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit that we see in Genesis hovering over the waters. Three in one. Father the Creator, the Word that actually now starts forming and crafting and the Spirit that brings life, just like we are brought to life in our image through the breath of God. God is three persons. Second is that each of them are fully God. Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct, but still fully divine. And third, there's just one God. And I know this sounds confusing. I'd be happy to talk more. But what really stood out to me this morning of why Adam, why it was not good that Adam was alone is because God himself is not alone. Actually, he created out of the overflow of his love. Not because he had necessity for anything, but rather said, I want all of creation to participate in this beautiful communal love that I experience, Father, Son, and Spirit. So I will create image bearers to get a small taste of that. This is a pre-disorder, pre-Genesis 3 invitation, not something to fix after what we call as the fall or disorder. This is something true and beautiful to dwell in unity with one another. It's not self-serving, but it's partnership out of the overflow. So Yahweh Elohim, three in one, the triune God creates man, says it's not good for man to be alone. I will create a helper suitable for him. There's two terms here that are really important for us to unpack. The first is helper, and the second is a suitable companion. The first is helper. In Genesis, we see that a lot of threads and themes are going to start here and continue throughout this unified story of Scripture. But this word helper has been the seedbed for a lot of abuse and misreadings. Mainly, it's just been said somehow, without any study, if I'm being honest, that women now serve a helping role, which is a subservient, slave-like, less-than role to man. Okay? That's what the often reading has been. My humble opinion, it's not actually that difficult to look at Scripture and to say there's actually zero evidence scripturally that this word helper is ever used to represent that. Ever. Two ways that the verb is used. So an action-oriented word in the Old Testament used in two primary ways. The first is of military assistance. Some of you have heard of David. Well, David had some beef with his soon-to-be father-in-law. He got kicked out, and he's hiding out in a stronghold in Ziklag. He's waiting for some reinforcements because he's being attacked. And so, when he's in this place, this is what he says he's looking for. When people come knocking at the door of his stronghold, he says, Have you come to me in peace, or have you come here to help me? If you have come here to help me, I'm ready for you to join. First is military assistance, because in response to David, these troops that are coming for a military assistance say, David, we belong to you. We're on your side. May you have great success. And then lastly, this. May those who help you also have success. Your God will help you. So the first is military assistance, but it, this last verse points to the second meaning, divine assistance. Divine assistance. In the noun form in the Old Testament, used 56 times, almost exclusively. I went through every single one. There might be a slight argument for one or two of them. 56 times, it is almost exclusively used for God giving divine help, being an azer, 
a helper to the poor, to the needy, to the humiliated, to the orphan, to those afraid. It says that God is a helper, an azer, a source of help. He is a hiding place. He is at my side. He is a shelter. He is a rock. Some of you have heard the term Ebenezer. Maybe you've heard of a church named Ebenezer. What that means is rock of help. When Joshua raised up this, this rock, he said, this now is Ebenezer, a rock of help. Two ways that this word is used. First is military assistance. The second is divine assistance. To put simply, the best understanding of this word is someone indispensable to the cry, help! Not, hey, by the way, could you grab that for me? Thank you. It's actually just really important to say we actually need each other in a way that God actually reflects the best way how we help each other. But he says, but you're going to be helpers. The second term is suitable or compatible. Konegdo is a phrase in Hebrew. Canadian Old Testament press, uh, professor Mary Conway says this about this next phrase, about a suitable, suitable helper. The phrase is best translated corresponding to Adam or to him. A term that implies competence and equality rather than subordination and inferiority. There is an otherness to this helper that God is creating that will correspond with Adam. It will correspond in equality to the fullness of man to mirror the image of this triune God who is in community, Father, Son, and Spirit. He says, that's the type of helping relationship and partnership that I'm going to create. It's not good for you to be alone. You need each other. The woman is there to help and serve Adam keep the earth, not to serve and keep the man. And we have to miss the next beautiful scene after these terms. There's a beautiful scene we don't often talk about. I don't even know if Adam knows that this is God's plan. It doesn't say that God spoke to Adam about this. It just said that God spoke out loud that it's not good for him to be alone. And what God actually does is he starts bringing the animals before Adam. This is what we, we read. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, all the birds in the sky and the fish of the sea. All the wild animals. Now Adam is reflecting God because in Genesis 1, God spoke to create. And now in Genesis 2, God says, Adam, I want you to name and participate in the naming of creation to bring order from unorder. Ian Proven again says, names in the Old Testament, naming speaks not so much of what things are as to where they fit in the cosmos. Not so much of what a thing is, but where they fit in the cosmos. And after Adam had seen all of the animals come to him, he says, man, nothing's an azer. Nothing's actually a helper. Suitable. Nothing is fitting for this role. I love this scene. I also love these words of Carmen uh, Joy Imes in her new book, uh, Being God's Image. She writes this. I love this quote. While many animals populate the garden, none of them is suitable for companionship. If the man needed someone to take orders, he could have chosen an ox or a mule. If he needed a shadow, he could have chosen a dog. But none of them can help him carry out his responsibilities 
as a full partner. And none can hold him accountable to maintain the boundaries that God has set. None. And so what we see next is God acting in a way that only God can do. Creating. This looks a little bit different than the rest of the animals. God causes a sleep to go upon Adam. But God does not shape the woman from the earth, if you notice. That's how Adam was created. That's how the creatures were created. New word, new Hebrew word. You can forget it after this. Bana, which means created. He took piece of flesh from the man's side. Rib, side is a better translation, but not the head, sign of authority, not the feet, side of slavery, the side. And God actually created a work of art out of Adam, out of the man. Making two from the one. A suitable partner has been made from the same flesh, with the same purpose, with the same vocation to serve and to keep. And then God presents the woman to Adam. And this was possibly the most challenging piece that I, I interact, or by challenging I mean like personally convicting to me this week. Look how Adam responds. Look how Adam responds to human partnership. Another human being. This is what he says, at last, finally, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Adam's response is like, this is great. This is good. This is what it means, I think, to be made in the image of God. To be in the presence of another. I just say that when was the last time you sung because something beautiful happened to you? Have you had that feeling? This might be the first poem that we see in all the scripture. But I just mean that type of joy that happens. You're like, this is just a good thing. I have no other response than to actually just show with my body that this is good. Praiseworthy. The only proper response is delight. And we'll see this throughout Scripture. Think of Moses after the sea, Red Sea divides. He's singing. When the angel comes to Mary and says, hey, this is the plan, she responds with prayer and singing. The angels before Jesus in the book of Revelation, they're just singing. They're like, There's no other response but delight. And it hurts me to think that some people see this passage and they think that because Adam names the woman that she's lesser than him. The funny thing is this, he also names himself. This is where that second word for man comes. You shall be called Isha, for you were taken out of Ish. Adam doesn't just name the woman, he also gives himself, in light of his new partner, a new name. I think this is so beautiful to say how we relate to each other is how we fit in the cosmos and how we are named. No longer is it Adam, but Ish. The end of the story gives us the image of two being reunited, becoming one flesh again. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. Maybe just to note, sexual reproduction and intimacy is not unique to bearing God's image. It's actually very regular within the story of Genesis for all that was created. We have trees that bear seed that will produce the same tree. We have animals that will reproduce together. And now, yes, we see human beings in this space of sexual intimacy. But that's not actually the purpose of uniqueness here. 
Yes, we are given an institution of marriage that will be carried out throughout the remainder of Scripture. And yet in the end, in new creation, the final image is the church, the body of Christ, being the bride for Jesus the groom. And likely in new creation, the institution of marriage won't exist. It's human partnership that's pointing at. This institution, just like Sabbath given at the end of Genesis 1, this is the institution given at Genesis 2 for human beings to remember actually how beautiful it can be in this form, which is a reflection of who God is. But it's not the ultimate or only thing. It says that they were naked and they felt no shame. They were fully themselves with no filters and no shame. I don't know how often we find that as human beings with each other, if we're honest. Not just marriage or intimate partners, just people. To actually be shameless in front of someone that you can fully be yourself. This is what they felt. This is beautiful. Beautiful vision of human partnership. And this is the story that human partnership is a, is a primary way that we participate in the divine life as image bearers. The main way that we reveal this to the world by how we live out our vocation as priests to know God, to delight in Him through being with other people. And throughout the rest of Scripture, we see this partnership of human beings participating together in a multitude of different ways. Often people cry out, God, be my Azer. And what God says is, hey, here's a person. Here's a fellow pilgrim. Here's a fellow journeyman. We see this in friends and brother-in-law, Jonathan and David. We see this through mentorship in the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. We see niece and uncle challenging the genocide of a people in Esther and Mordecai. We see a mother-in-law, daughter-in-law through Ruth and Naomi. We see co-workers working together, Shifra and Pua who are both the midwives that says, we're not going to murder Israelite babies. And they say together, actually, we're going to work to not do that. We see Prisca and Aquila, marriage in the New Testament. We see servant and slave partnership through Onesimus and Philemon in the New Testament. This is not exclusively for marriage. This is the nature of human beings being in partnership, delighting in God and revealing this delight to the world by serving and keeping this vocational identity. So that's our story. And now I just want to end with saying, what in the world does that have to do with us today? Pastorally, I think that we, followers of Jesus, show up at church and maybe community group and maybe some other Christian community throughout the week. I think that we imagine that partnership is created in response to fix the disorder of the world, the rebellion of humanity, instead of something good that was created in the beginning. Just thinking, like this was created before anything messed up happened. God says, it's good for you to be with each other. Because I think often for us, being with human beings, we often say, hey, it's messy. Like how often is that our first response? Ah, you know, working with people. It's just a mess. Right? Isn't this not actually our natural response? It's like a caveat that we say to be like, yeah, life's kind of hard. It's because people were there. Right? I think pastorally, we think that Human partnership might be trying to fix something, not actually something beautiful in and of itself. But what God set forth in Genesis, this vocation of human beings being priests, serving and keeping, 
are now in the New Testament. Those who serve and keep within the kingdom of God. This new garden that Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark has drawn near to you. This kingdom has drawn near and you're serving and keeping with each other in it. One of Jesus' disciples, one of the partnerships that Jesus had with uh, James, John, and Peter. Peter writes this, you, and I want this to sink in, you, talking to a group of people in a church, a gathered group of followers of Jesus, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. You are a group of people that you might declare the praises of God. And Peter's saying this in a world that he says is dark, that has pain, disorder, strife. I'm sure that all of us actually have been really hurt through human partnership. We're not quite sure if it's a way of healing or even something good. Maybe something at best could help us in some way, but is not the ultimate thing. But the disorder of our day points back to the unorder that God saw in Adam in Genesis 2. The only difference now is that other people exist. For Adam, there was no one. This crisis of personhood, Andy Crouch writes, is the one word that could sum up, the one word that could sum up this crisis of personhood for the powerful and the powerless alike is loneliness. For the powerful and powerless alike, the crisis of personhood right now is loneliness. It's not good for human beings to be alone. Even closer to home, uh, Dr. Kimberly Brown Lee, who's a Canadian philosopher, also a prophet at UBC, says this in an article entitled Alone in a Crowded City about Vancouver in 2022. We, human beings, are so deeply social that, our, that meeting our social needs for decent human contact, for acceptance within a community, for companionship, loving relations, and interdependent care is more important than meeting almost every other need we have. I wonder where she got that from. Like, where in the world of the story of the people of God and what it means to be human could someone say, you know what, the deepest thing that human beings need is to be with each other. I'm saying it's built within our framework as image bearers that we must experience the delight of being in partnership with other people. Because we are made in the image of a God who is a community of Father, Son, and Spirit delighting in each other, creating out of overflow. No wonder this is a crisis. But we've been given a balm for this crisis. We taste of this in the person of Jesus. Jesus, the reflection of God, who is probably very content being in relationship with His Father and with the Spirit, said, I'm actually going to go down to the crisis of personhood. I'm going to share myself so that these people might know what true intimacy is like. Jesus gave up His own body that we could be actually described by this word body. It's a word that we in church circles throw around all the time. Soma, body. But we need each other. That's why I think he used this image. (laughs) Like maybe we just need to refresh ourselves in that image of a body. Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 21, he says this. This line hit this week for me. No one can say to another person that I have no need for you. 
No person can say to another person, I have no need for you. We can take that as a guilt trip. Or we can actually say, how beautiful would it be if we actually acknowledged that we could learn from every single person here in a way of particularity? What if Adam's response was like, hey, grab the tablet, got to finish writing these animal names. That's not what he did. He stopped his work and he just started praising. He said, I have need for you. Loneliness, I think, in our time, as Andy Crouch says, I don't have the quote on here, but it stood out, is the benign use of the other for our own ends. That's what loneliness can be. The benign use. You serve me, and that's the end. I think this is why there's loneliness in human partnerships like marriage. I think there's lonelinesses in friendships. I think we experience loneliness with our coworkers. I think we taste of loneliness in our families. I think we taste of loneliness in the successes that we have that should actually prove that we're better than who we are, and yet we're still lonely. And I think there's also lonelinesses in the church community when we just use other people for our own ends instead of delighting in them because they extend to us a piece of the image of God that we cannot extend to ourselves. So, how should we respond? Delight and praise. Before going further, I just want to say, how have you, especially those who have been here for a while, how have you uniquely delighted in God through the community here at this church? I want you to think of a tangible example. Where have you actually experienced delight because of a way that you connected with one other person here? And if you're not from this church, maybe it's just a way you've connected with Christian community at some point in your life that you're like, man, that actually, that was a delight. That was a delight. That was worthy of praise. Because when we show up on a Sunday, we say hello, and we do not bear the weight of this beautiful responsibility to be helping partners to each other, we are missing what God put into motion in this first week of existence. You have the potential to learn in delight from every single person in this community in such a way that you will be drawn closer to the person of Jesus and you likely, you likely will even draw others to His presence. And you have the potential to extend to every single person in this community a partnership of delight that will draw them closer to the person of Jesus and will equip them to reveal the goodness of God every single place where they go. And with potential, there also can be fall. But there is potential. It's an invitation. And so I ask, how have you uniquely delighted in God through community, here at reality or in a Christian, Christian space. Maybe it's similar to what Joel was saying when we start learning about someone else, not just about who they are in relation to their parent or their spouse, but we actually learn their names. My hunch is that the moments of delight that you've had here is when we're being priests to each other. That's my hunch. 
The moments when you're like, I felt true delight are the moments where we are living out our vocation of serving and keeping with each other and to each other. God's vision of community is bigger than coffee dates. It's bigger than bike rides. It's bigger than dinners or getting cheap babysitting through someone who's here or Sunday lunch after the service. I mean, we chuckle, but sometimes that's just what we think Christian community is. It's an aid to our own ends. And some of these are really beautiful things. But I'm saying uh, my hunch is even further that these moments of delight that you've had is when we're fulfilling our priestly duty of serving and keeping with each other, which is of more depth than just showing up and being next to someone and kind of talking surface level. We can do that in almost any space we go with people. This is a particular community of invitation, that we are the fullness of Christ that fills every place in every way. Because God, Father, Son, and Spirit has filled every place in every way with his image bearers that represent this overflow of love. That's the invitation of human partnership. So I have three invitations for us. The first is I I challenge you to memorize Ephesians 1, uh, 15 to 23. It's a prayer of Paul. I've been doing that this week myself. It's a prayer for the church. Paul says that every time he thinks of the people that gather here, he praises and prays that they might know Christ just a little bit more. And he also prays that they would realize that they are the fullness of him that fills every place in every way. So that's the first invitation. Actually, just challenge you to read through this and pray this over people in your community. Thank, knowing each other enough to pray for them. To know each other enough of how to pray for them. Second, I want you to make excuses to practice partnership, okay? I want you to make excuses to practice partnership. Instead of just inviting people to play, (laughs) this is going to sound super lame, okay? Instead of inviting people to play, I invite you to pray, okay? (laughs) I was like trying to think of how not to run that. But I just think that we can help each other in more tangible ways because it's a luxury in the West that we've turned partnership into playmates. We're like, hey, let's go hang out. Like, yep, let's do it. We got the availability to do that here. We got the flex. But that's not actually the only part of invitation that we have. We settle for a mediocre form of friendship when we are invited to be the body of Christ that actually serve and keep with one another. That's going to be some awkward times to be like, hey, do you actually want to talk of depth with each other and then maybe I can ask how you're doing so I can pray for you during this week because it'd be awesome to do that together because I probably need it myself. Instead, we're like, let's just hang out. No purpose. A group of us, uh, we, a group of guys we meet once a month uh, at a McDonald's at 7 a.m. We read through a short essay that I think a lot of us cram that morning um, as an excuse to talk about meaningful things and then to pray for each other just been a really sweet thing. I've only been twice out of the four times they've met. But just make excuses to actually have points of partnership with people. You could use, I can send you the essays that we use if you want to have an excuse. But just an excuse to, to actually be with each other in that way. And lastly, this is maybe the simplest or the hardest. Just thank someone that's been a delight to you. Just say thank you. I invite you to be particular Why has it been delight? How did that person show you a little bit more about who Jesus is? Just thank them. Then you can awkwardly walk away. But that's the invitation. Okay? 
So my first invitation, memorize Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. Try that. Your morning time. You can just re- rehearse it during the day. Memorize it and then actually pray, for, pray it for people. It's a prayer. Second thing, make excuses to be in partnership with people, not just hanging out. In partnership, reflecting the priestly duties of serving and keeping. Third, out of the delight of who God is. Just go and, kind of like Adam, when he prays when he saw woman made, just say, thank you. You've actually shown this to me. And I think through that, from Genesis, we get a little taste of what human flourishing can look like when we participate in the life of a communal God for the life of the world. To be fully human, we're invited to fully participate with each other in partnership. One way that we're going to respond to this is, um, or we're going to respond in a few ways. One is song. So I'll invite the team to come up. We're going to have three songs in this set. The second is through prayer. We're going to have two people in the back that are available to pray. They'd love to just chat with you about anything. It doesn't have to have anything to do with this sermon. And third, we also uh, invite you to come to the table. This piece of commu- this, these pieces of bread and this de-alkalized wine represent Jesus inviting us to participate in his life of love and overflow. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you during this first song to come up. We're going to have two people here and they're going to dip the bread and de-alkalized wine and say, this is God's body, Jesus' body given for you and his blood shed for you. If you need an option that doesn't have gluten, we have some wafers here and we also have some options for juice packets if you'd prefer over de-alkalized wine. But this is the invitation for us now, not simply to hear, but to respond. So let me pray for us. Jesus, I want to thank you and praise you for the goodness of who you are. God, I want to thank you that you invite us into a space, uh, a place, an earth to inhabit, to serve and to keep, and that you said it's actually not good if we do it by ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray that in this community, these people that are gathered here, would you teach us the delight of what it is to be in partnership with other people. Lord, I also pray and just acknowledge that there's a lot of hurt being with people too. So Lord, as maybe this sermon brought up hurt and pain that has been experienced through human partnership gone awry, I ask in your mercy, in this moment, maybe through your body and blood, that you just would remind them that even when human partnership feels to flee away, that you are present with each one here, and that you extend your fullness of love to every person here. But Lord, I ask that our vision for being a community in partnership would be a vision of delight, and grant us your mercy that we can be your fullness in every place, in every way. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, a community of love and care, amen.